0: For podcasting. The PSAs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon. All right, welcome back. Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO. Trent Condon, Ken Miller with you until noon in about twenty minutes or thereabouts, our friend Zubin Mahente from ESPN will join us in his regular spot. We'll go around the world of sports with our friend Zubin. Right now, as we talked about yesterday, I'm leery uh, that college football is going to be up on the betting board. Whether you're a DraftKings customer or William Hill or any of the sports books and their partners uh, in the state of Iowa, will we be able to bet college football with COVID going on? Will coaches be forced? Uh, to put out some sort of report leading up to the game? Will they do what they like to do, and that's keep it under wraps? I think you're crazy. You do think I'm crazy. I think that it's very touch-and-go. Matt Holt, I knew would be the perfect guy to talk to. His company is U.S. Integrity, uh, where their goal is to ensure every sporting competition is fair and transparent. Uh, They partner with some of the largest professional sports leagues and collegiate conferences in the country. Uh, Matt and I used to work together probably for five, six, seven years, somewhere around there. And he joins the program. Matt uh, Trent Condon is my partner. Good to talk to you again, Matt Holt. How have you been?
1: I'm I'm well, Ken. Great to catch up. You know, it's been a, it's been too long. Uh, I remember the Canter days. We, yeah. I think I was there for eight. You were there for probably close to at least that. And um, sixteen. You know, people, yeah. Wow. I always tell people, you know, some of the the trails we blazed at Cantor, the first ever company to launch a regulated mobile sports betting app in the United States. And um, there were some really fun times. I learned a lot. I really enjoyed my time there. And, um, you know, I I was happy to, be able to move on and start U.S. integrity, and uh, we're really excited about the future over here.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. You did it the right time because sports wagering is taking off in the country, as as you well know. And uh, well, we'll get to that coming up because I'm interested to pick your brain as to you know who you think the big elephant is still that's out there. May it's probably the answer is California seems to be getting close, but we'll do that in a second. So, Matt, my question um, with with the COVID-19 and the fact we saw Ezekiel Elliott yesterday, his agent put it out there the Cowboys did He did. But when it comes to college sports... As you well know, uh, there is no commitment to put out an injury report. I know it was, I think, two or three years ago uh, that Jim Delaney, who at the time was the commissioner of the Big Ten, uh, he wanted to put out a, a, a conference-wide injury report, do so every week. Not necessarily say what it was, but John Doe isn't going to play this week. It never materialized. But now we're in uncharted territory here. Do you think because of the uncertainty surrounding – some of the athletes, for instance, a starting quarterback at a school who's means so much to their program, and all of a sudden he's stricken with the virus. Do you think that there's a chance that there will be some companies that take college football off the board due to that very reason?
1: Absolutely not. And I'd even be surprised to find out that there was any... Reduced limits set on college football. Look, injury reporting and transparency into player availability has been a major issue in college football for as long as I can remember, but even just in the last two years since the past, since PASPO was repealed and sports betting has now become uh, legalized in 22 states, launched in 20. Um, it's still an issue now. And then part of we saw it last year. If you remember the Louisiana Tech-Marshall game with the suspensions of a quarterback, top wide receiver, and a running back, and that line went from one and a half to seven and a half. Um, and a lot of the betters beat the information. That's going to continue to be the case. But we constantly talk to coaches, administrators across the country That if your coach, if your head coach at your college football program, continues to use injuries and information and player availability as a um, you know game manipulation or a tool for um, you know trying to uh, game preparation. Uh, then your school is going to lose. It creates an underground market. It, it it makes that information more valuable. The best thing your head coach could be is transparent. And you said it best earlier. It's not about what the injury is, what the ailment is, or what that young man or woman, that student athlete is dealing with. It's, sim- it's a simple two-step process, available, not available to play in this game. And we're seeing more and more coaches at least do a better job of saying, this player will be available, this player won't be available available and hopefully that trend will continue to get better as we head into this season during unprecedented times.
2: Matt throughout this time we've uh, heard so many universities and coaches hide behind HIPAA. They've used it in times where they don't need to use it, right. but it is still a law. It is still an issue here. If you can explain a little bit deeper and for the coaches that use that crutch if you will as it pertains to injuries or just players being available, how that permeates into the college ranks and college football especially.
1: Yeah, I mean, HIPAA is something that we deal with uh, all the time, working with collegiate conferences, teams, universities, et cetera, like you just discussed. And basically for people listening that may not totally understand that, it's the disseminating of people's private medical information without their consent. And that's a valid concern. I mean, there should be some level of privacy in this world just because you're an athlete, especially an amateur collegiate athlete who isn't getting paid, where your medical issues are your own. And again, at the end of the day, all the gamblers, and, and the TV broadcasters care about is are you going to play or aren't you going to play? There's no reason to release specific details about any athlete's eligibility or medical uh, any medical issues that they're dealing with. What we tend to find is that the coaches and the NCA because the NCA Still hasn't changed their sports betting policy since 2003. So the most updated NCAA sports betting policy is Jeez. the 2003 "Don't Bet on It" campaign. So until they come up with an update, uh, come out with an updated policy, the schools, the universities, the conferences themselves still kind of have to follow the guidelines of a 17-year-old. Uh, Policy that was put in place prior to Daily Fantasy Sports, prior to the repeal of PASPA, prior to mobile sports betting, that doesn't really make a lot of sense right now, but also says to the coaches and the administrators, hey, we shouldn't bow down to gamblers in any way. Our student-athletes and our administrators and our coaches aren't allowed to gamble. They're not allowed to participate in any gambling. Thus, why are we then going to turn around and put the onus on them to release an injury report Um, that it basically is built for gamblers. So, unfortunately, I think most people get it at this point. We're seeing more transparency from coaches. The conferences and the universities themselves have have done an amazing job of education, awareness, trying to learn as much as they can about sports betting, partnering with independent integrity firms like us, the U.S. Integrity. We work with the SEC, the Big 12, the Pac-12. A lot of the major conferences across the country and then big universities like Penn State, University of Pittsburgh. Um, so I think most of the universities get it and care. But I think the the issue here is we just need an updated policy from both the conferences, probably, and especially from the NCAA.
2: Uh,
0: Matt Hold is our guest. He is the founder and CEO of U.S. Integrity, usintegrity.com. Uh, Matt, do you think that the, uh, the coronavirus, the COVID-19, will lead college uh, conferences to putting out that availability maybe maybe that was planned for a couple years down the road but do you think by this fall something like that could be in place
1: well it it certainly may be more transparent than ever this year especially when it comes to covid uh, because the spread of it is so deadly and then it's so so contagious that i think um, hiding the fact that someone has COVID is doing a disservice to everyone that may have come in contact with that individual or played that team. So I think people are going to be forced to be a little bit more transparent with the COVID situations than they have been with standard injuries in the past, and that that to your point may lead into let 's just be transparent about eligibility, injuries and medical issues, et cetera as much as we can period.
2: Matt, as you look forward, and if we don't get the complete transparency that I think a lot of us want, Ken wondered, with this going on, and not just a player or two, but a whole group being stricken with it, Games coming off the board or games being completely taken away, is that something that you see a likelihood of happening if we don't have this report and this is becoming more and more widespread by the time we get to fall again and we see another spike where casinos, operators decide, you know what, we can't deal with this with college football and put these lines out when we don't have all the information?
1: And look, what what some people may not realize is there hasn't been one single season in the last 10, 15, 20, you name it, years where at least one game hasn't been taken off the board for some period of time, uh, whether it's because of a key quarterback injury, mass potential mass suspensions. We see games come off the board all the time. So do I expect to see games come off the board this year when rumors become rampant that several key starters on a major college football team team may or may not have COVID? Absolutely. And the books are doing that not only to protect the sports books and their financial liability, but to protect the consumers. It's a really bad customer experience for a customer, you know, an Iowa fan or an Iowa State fan to to walk up to the betting window um play, put down his hard earned dollars you know on the cyclones this week and then all of a sudden he finds out that seven starters have COVID. He's upset. He already mm-hmm. made a bet. He made it at odds that are now going to be you know massively um outside of the market range of what the game's going to close at, so it's a bad customer experience. He may not want to bet as much again. It's a bad experience for the sports books. It creates an underground market uh, where nefarious activity can happen, where you start having trainers, administrators, coaches, players, etc., being compensated for divulging personal information, uh, then that's when you get into HIPAA lawsuits and everything else. Is when you have people inside the locker room distributing that that information unlawfully or illicitly. So. Um, yeah, I do think it's going to be interesting this year. Games will certainly come off the board. I guess the question's going to be, you know, normally it might be a handful of games a year come off the board for some period of time uh, during the betting cycle that week. Is it, is it going to go tenfold this year? Is it going to be double? Uh, I guess that's the the question that we still have to you know think about at this point
0: uh matt hold is our guest matt couple more minutes we'll let you go uh, you mentioned uh, 22 states it's legal 20 states uh sports wagering is now available um, you know, with, with the, you know, with the COVID, uh, I, I have to assume that the states that may have been a little bit reluctant or maybe slow playing, moving to offering sports wagering might now be a little bit more enthusiastic about making that part of their upcoming legislation. What, uh, what do you, th- where will we get to, Matt? I mean, I don't think Nebraska will ever have it. I don't. Utah probably the same way. Will 40 states offer this within the next uh, five to 10 years? Do you think will it be legal in 40 or how many do you see?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there will be. I mean, look, 38 states have uh, casino gaming already. I think it's 39 have lottery. We have 40 that have some type of gaming in this country. There's no reason to believe we won't mirror those numbers with sports betting, especially um, with, you know, to your point, with the economic impact of COVID and, and some of the other things that are happening in this country. We're seeing more and more states that have massive, massive debts, and they're looking for any new revenues source they can look people told me california was a 2025 six or nine months ago and california suddenly has made real progress they could easily be a 2021 launch um, so I think we're going to get there. I think by the end of 21, we'll be, uh, we'll be over 30 states taking bets. And I could see a scenario by, where by the end of 2023, we hit that big 40 mark in the United States. I mean, look at the state of Colorado recently, mm-hmm. who was pegged to launch May 1. There were no sports going on. COVID was happening. The state still launched in May 1. And with nothing but UFC, table tennis, one celebrity golf match, and a little bit of NASCAR, they did $27 million <laughs> of handle in the month of May with very little to bet on. I think that was really encouraging for any of those states that were on the fence.
2: I uh, love that. My fellow degenerates out in Colorado, they got a fire as soon as it becomes illegal. We're talking with Matt Holt here. U.S. Integrity is where you can find the website about it. So I want to let you go, my last thing for you, on just what you do normal, before we've had this COVID, before we've had you know, kind of the other part. Let's just say it's a random Iowa State non-conference game they're taking on, well, a team like Florida A&M, who they ended up losing to last year. You guys have your in normal... basketball. In basketball. You had your normal parameters, normal amounts coming in, and something comes up. What would be a trigger on your day-to-day operations, a non-conference basketball game involving a Big 12 team, where you say something seems fishy? Take us through the process, if you can.
1: Sure. So we, we set thresholds and parameters for everything around um, an event. It's the, what makes the event abnormal and what could potentially make the wagering markets abnormal. And then we look for abnormalities or flags in our system within the wagering markets that correlate with flags or abnormalities within the actual event itself. And that could be misuse of insider information, which we just discussed a little while ago. That could be potential officiating issues, officials are the most vulnerable and have the biggest impact on almost every single sport, but say that we do flag a game. What we do then is we go to the uh, local gaming control board there, who we work very closely with, and the operators there who took the wagers, and we look into who made the wagers. Then we run the name of the individual who made the wagers through LexisNexis to see if you know are they a cousin of the quarterback? Are they the brother in law of of the point guard? You know what is the situation? Do they have any uh, discernible relationship with the uh, questionable or abnormal event? and then the gaming control boards themselves could take over the criminal aspect and and issue subpoenas for finances and start looking into records Um, but, but due to the fact that we're able to personally see the bets being placed the line movements that are happening we get so much statistical and event data from the leagues and conferences if there's an abnormality with the event that correlates with an abnormality in the wagering market that's always where we start And then it's just a matter of, at this point, who made the bets? Where did they make the bets? What people don't realize is, you know... Uh, Even if you make a bet over-the-counter anonymously, if that bet's going to win more than $10,000, you still have to show your ID. And in some states, they do state mandates of $3,000 or more, where you you have to give your ID uh, when you make those wagers. So one way or another, the people that are making the bets are either making it on an account, which we can track, or they're making it and giving their ID, which we can track. Um, and then we always start with the bets. Here's, who, here's the bets that were made, here's the people that made them, and then we go from there.
0: Matt Holt, usintegrity.com, usintegrity.com. Matt is the founder and chief executive officer, and we're grateful for you coming on, Matt. Great to catch up with you. Congrats on your success, and we'll do it again, okay?
1: Thanks, guys. Great to
0: catch up. Take good. care. You're good to talk to you. Matthew Holt, uh, joining us. Good conversation. Great question at the end,
2: Trent. What yeah. goes into it? What's it's really intriguing, for? isn't it? Because mm-hmm. I've always wondered that. It, a couple of big bets come in. Well, it doesn't mean that there's something nefarious coming out. Just guy I mean, has a hunch. Has a feeling that thinks his number sheet says it's off, but right. there is a lot more that goes into it in finding out exactly how that plays out. Really cool stuff from Matt Holt. All right, we will talk to Zubin Mahente next. We played the not played as the have the fireworks gone off yet? Oh, they're coming. In oh, fact, really, let's, let's fire it up right now. <laughs> There you go. That's your cue to call. Caller number one. Let's take number one.
0: 284 5966. 284 5966. Miller and Condon till noon. Zubamante next.
2: 1460 KXNO, 106
0: Poet in Clyde. Ken Miller, Trent Condon. Miller and Condon on 1460
3: KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM.
0: Welcome back. Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM. Take you up towards noon. Uh, let's get our friend Zubin Mehente in here. We go around the world of sports with Zubin. He's great, uh, good enough to join us uh, here again this week. Zubin, Trent, and Ken, thank you for coming on, Zubin Mehente. How was your week?
3: Pretty good. I was watching Greenberg. I don't know if you saw this last night. You know, the commissioner is on. It was... Uh... It's pretty enlightening. I wasn't sure what we were going to get out of that, but uh, Manfred and Goodell had some interesting things to say.
0: You know, uh, Zubin, uh, I forgot all about it. I never watched it. Uh, I don't know what else I was doing last night. Um, But I, (laughs) I didn't see that. Uh oh, I know what it was. Barkskins is my new series that I'm into. Anyways, that aside. So uh who looked who came across well, Zubin in your mind? A lot of folks now think that there is a uh the Gary Bettman no longer resides in the basement as far as the most um, disliked commissioners of the four major sports that Rob Manford has clearly taken his place. Uh in your opinion, who came off well and uh and who maybe uh is taking some arrows here today?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think Manfred's in a really tough situation right now. Goodell came across quite well just because he really is now sort of using words like encouraging teams to sign Colin Kaepernick. And Jennifer Ashton was our medical expert, and that's the one thing that's been lost
1: in all of this.
3: I just think that there are so many people out there that are putting the safety concerns of coronavirus to the side, and he should kind of brought that back to the forefront, so It was really interesting. Kathy Engelbert of the WNBA was there. They're ready to go, 22-game season. MLS commissioner Don Garber was there. They're ready to go with a 56-game tourney, and then they'll get their regular season going. So it was a pretty interesting array of things. It's tough to get all these people together at one point, but I think it's pretty critical. And from a PR situation, you see Tony Clark out there. You saw Marie Smith out there, although the NFL obviously has their CBA done. They're pretty lucky they got it done pre-pandemic. You can only imagine what the NFL situation would be like mm. if that was up in the air right now. And obviously the NBA is in a bind with Michelle Roberts after some of this Kyrie Irving news. But I think they really felt they needed to get out there and presented their side of the story because they really felt like the story was spinning out of control on all their ends.
2: A week ago, Zubin, Rob Manfred said, 100% chance. There's going to be Major League Baseball in 2020. Then last night, talking to Greenberg, he sounded not very optimistic. In fact, he said, quote, I'm not confident when speaking about the return of baseball in 2020. What has changed? Or is this just continued more posturing?
3: I think it's more posturing, but I really don't think he wants to unilaterally implement the 48 to 54 games because if he has to do that, I think you're burning a bridge moving forward. Because the next CBA ends on December 1, 2021. And considering it's a day-to-day thing, and we don't know what's going to happen next week, much less next month, much less next year, especially in the years that we've had already this year with everything that's going on, I think it's tough to say, well, you know, baseball's not going to be around in 2022 if they make this mistake. But I really think he's the situation... Where he wants to do everything possible to not force baseball to be played. I think he just wants to have some sort of an agreement, even if it's really poor for one side or the other. But I do think that when you look at the situation as is, the way that the union sent that letter back Saturday night, it was scathing. <laughs> Tell us when and where right. we're done. And so I think from that standpoint, it's really difficult because he could end all of this and just say, it's done. We're playing 48 to 54 games, which really nobody wants. Uh, and they're not going to expand the playoffs, which really nobody wants. And over the weekend, I'm sure you guys saw that story about Major League Baseball Turner coming to an agreement yeah. to expand the playoffs. So it's getting harder for the owners to say that we're not making a lot of money. Bill Dewitt Jr., the owner of the Cardinals, was much maligned last week when he made a comment that said, "Our margins aren't exactly as great as you think." Um, to what many people said, it's mainly one owner in the four major professional sports that says, "I want to sell my team, and <laughs> the person won't get a king's ransom right. on what they paid." Right? Literally any team: the Tampa Bay Rays, the Oakland Athletics, the least desirable team in the four major professional sports. Any NFL team, of course, and they would get. Kings ransom percentage-wise on what they paid for the team whenever they bought it or it was passed down in their family. So I think that's really the tough part about all this. You have to look ahead to 2021, 2022, and say, how much long-term damage are we doing to the sport? It's hard to tell sitting here in 2020. But the answer
0: is pretty massive. I'm with you. I think uh, 2022, the major league baseball season, will there be? And we got a long way to go before that. But Zubin, I think next December and going forward, those negotiations are going to be nasty. You said expand playoffs. And I know that you were referencing major league baseball, but let me take it. Uh, let me take that uh, and expand on it. Um, if if college football has to shut down this year and we can't play all those games and the schools can't get their tv money if colleges see a significant decrease uh in the number of of students who attend those i don't want to pay that big money i i i'm not going to get a college experience i have to i'm going to do this in my parents basement might this force a expedited college football playoff discussion because it's not going to happen as we sit here today until the end of the television contracts in college football might the circumstances speed up the clock on college football playoffs just because that would in theory put more money uh, in these in the in the conferences to be distributed amongst the schools yes
3: and I'm generally a believer that the playoffs is what it is. It's been four teams. I think I'm one of the very few people that think it's going to stay to four teams. That was pre-pandemic. Now I'm kind of getting to the point where I do believe that in terms of compensation, in terms of survival, it would be the way to go. I think initially people were like, it's just a matter of greed. I mean, there's just so much money on the table that they're leaving. Why would they leave it there? But in this particular situation, there's so much money on the table that's not being compensated for and they need that money back. So I think there's a distinction there. If you want to expand the playoffs because, you know, you're robbing a bank and we just left one vault open and we have all the time (laughs) in the world to open it and grab it, that's one thing. That's pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic is we're just trying to withdraw money out of our checking account, and we got to make sure there's some money in there. So I do believe that the lack of a season would do that. Also, keep in mind, for a lot of schools, like a great example is UCF. UCF has like 50,000 students, and when people think of big public universities, they think of like Ohio State, but I'm just using UCF because they're in the group of five. UCF, it's very, very common for them to ask students, part of their student fees, even if you're not interested in sports or don't go to a football game, part of student fees for everybody that attends the University of Central Florida is move towards the athletic department. They just call it something big, student fees. Well, suddenly you're not getting student fees, to your point, Ken, if I don't know what percentage of those 50,000 people aren't showing up because they don't feel like they need to pay full tuition to get a Zoom degree. And I think there lies the problem. So where are they going to make up those student fees? All that money goes to the athletic department. We won't have as many people coming to the games because of social distancing. So where do we make that money up? And the easiest answer of all is to obviously expand the playoffs and to get that money. So I think that is a reasonable possibility. Under the circumstances we're in now, though if we were in a normal world, and who knows what normal means moving forward, I don't think they would have done it. But in this particular circumstance, I agree. It's on the table.
2: As you look forward, college basketball also, what are we looking? 120-team bracket next year for the NCAA <laughs> tournament at <add> another round? <laughs> nice.
3: Yeah, I think the biggest thing that's... I, I know you say that tongue plan is firmly in big I think the biggest thing teams have learned from all of this or organizations have learned for all of this is you just got to have insurance, you know, the summer games Mm in Tokyo completely insured, 100% insured. So while NBC was using this opportunity to promote all of its other sporting events, they have a huge streaming service akin to Netflix. It's called Peacock. They were going to use the Olympics as a launching pad to try to get that out because for most companies, a streaming service is vital to their long-term success, vital to their long-term success. And they're not going to be able to have the game to reap the benefits or use that as a platform for any of their other business. But at least they're not losing any money. Obviously, the NCAA, as we found out, was insured but only partially insured uh, up against the TV network. So it's a tough situation. So I think the biggest thing is I think we're going to stay at 68. But I think the biggest thing to say is, you know, it's that old cliche, you know, you don't miss insurance until you don't have it. But, you know, we're just talking about homeowners and autos. These people are talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think it's a probably a pretty good lesson uh, moving forward. It's a very tough pill to swallow, though, when you think about the financial
0: hit you have to take to sort of wake up. Uh, Zubin Mehente from ESPN is our guest, a WOI Channel 5 alum, uh, here with Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO and 106.3 FM. Well, back to baseball in a roundabout way. Uh, sadly, I have no idea what I'm going to do on Sunday night at 8 o'clock. I know where <laughs> I've been the last five, two, one, one. So I, I know where I've been for the last 9 Um but this uh, long-gone summer, Zubin, I, I, I wish there was another part. I really do. Trent echoed the same thing, or I echo what Trent said yesterday uh, when we reconvened after the weekend. I thought it was incredibly well done, uh, Zubin, and um, I, I'm going to miss it. But uh, long-gone summer, what's the feedback been?
3: Really good. I think it's one of those situations where, you know, ratings-wise, uh, you, you might be surprised to hear this. Uh, Bruce Lee, the one that preceded Long Gone Summer, uh, destroyed Lance, both parts. I mean, absolutely (laughs) overwhelmed and destroyed Lance Mm -hmm. in both parts. I think part of that might have been when the first Lance aired, obviously the country's civil unrest was at an incredible high. Um, And I know there was a lot of people, whatever your persuasion is, watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox, that was right around that time where everything was really at a fever pitch. Uh, there was tons of looting, arson, people protests, um, to the point where there were just tens of thousands of people, You uh, know, I think in at least 75 cities off the bat. I know, of course, you guys were affected in Des Moines, but that was right off the bat. So I think a lot of people that normally may have watched the Lance documentary were prioritizing and saying, you know, there's a level of unrest here in the country we haven't seen since the 60s, and people were glued to their television to watch something else. So I'm not sure what Lance would have done if these were quote-unquote normal times. I do still think he, Lance Armstrong, has limited appeal. Of the ones post-Jordan, I just think McGuire and Sosa, whether you liked them or not, and seeing how many – you know, we ran a stat the other day that uh, no two guys had more home runs in the same season than these two guys. And obviously it crescendoed in the summer. Bob Costas was Scott Van Pelt after the show on Sunday, and I thought he lent a little bit of perspective. One thing that I thought note was notably missing, and I'm not exactly sure why this is the case. I have kind of poked my head in and inquired uh, from a media perspective, but I didn't see Joe Buck on it. And I another Joe Buck called yeah. him the famous home run from the home from the summer of '98. There were obviously some other great big broadcasting names in it, but uh, I did think that he would have been in it just because he was there and been associated with the Cardinals for such a long time. Mm-hmm. It really was in his wheelhouse when he was doing a lot more baseball uh, than he just does today with a handful of regular season games uh, and the playoffs. That was the one notable exception. I was wondering where he was. But overall, I thought it was great. Um, And we'll wait to see what we have in the pipeline for more of these things. They take a long, long time uh, to put together, but I think uh, they've been pretty universally well-received, whether it was, you know, let's call it martial arts, cycling, basketball, or baseball.
2: So there's been so many of these done. There's so many stories still to be told, though, and to do it with the 30 for 30 format that that is so good. Great directors that go on in there. Is there anything that still sits with you, something that you'd like to see a deep dive? I know there's other documentaries out there on a lot of the different topics, one that I'm sure would be close to Ken's heart. The drive in 1986, that popped to mind as I was uh, talking to a Cleveland Browns fan not too long ago, and that jumped up there. But anything jump out that hasn't been deciphered for 30 for 30 that you'd like to see?
3: You're going to laugh at this one because I'm not really a a fan of this particular sport uh, as much, maybe just because I'm 42 and it's not in my wheelhouse. But I would love to see, you know, UFC just had UFC 250. And I remember when UFC won, I didn't know anything about it, but I worked in Denver after I left Des Moines. And UFC won, number one, took place at uh, McNichols Arena, mm. which is now parking lot the old home of the Denver Nuggets. And I believe the two rules, and I'm not being facetious about this, I think it was no eye-gouging and there were no weight classes. Like It would just be any two guys getting into the ring, and I think there was no eye-gouging and a couple of very other minor rules that basically prevented savagery and barter. <laughs> but it was one of those things where it turned into from that, from UFC 1 with no rules, no holds barred at Nick Nichols Arena to a $4 billion business that was sold to William Morris Endeavor, which is a gigantic uh, entertainment firm. The idea that Dana White, who is out there with uh, you know Whitey Bulger in South Boston, uh, to Tillman Fertitas, to the people that have put this thing together and given it so much life. I'm not a UFC fan. I probably couldn't name five fighters outside of Conor McGregor and a handful of other guys, even though we're you know we have a huge deal with it on ESPN and we were on Saturday night after a big women's flyweight bout. I can't tell you or profess to know much about it, but the evolution of a sports league in a little over a quarter century that's gone from total niche, total tiny. John McCain, I believe the late great John McCain, called it human cockfighting to a lot of what has been said about this sport, to essentially, I wouldn't say become mainstream, but I would say Conor McGregor is probably as famous as most modern athletes in the world today. And just the evolution to see how an organization goes from that to what it goes to, to fight Island, to also these celebrities showing up, um, just in the sport it's been. Again, I'm not a fan of it. I don't know the technical aspect of it, but to see something rise the way that it has, Look, I mean, the NFL last year celebrated its 100th anniversary. The NBA is celebrating its 75th next year. It's obviously going to be a pretty somber one. This has been around just about a third of that or a fourth of what the NFL has done. And I'm not saying they're as popular as the NFL. I'm not going to say anything crazy like that. But in a quarter century plus, it's turned into a billion-dollar business. And I think when it would have started, I don't think anybody that took part in UFC won. And we've talked to some people that took part in the very first UFC event, could have ever imagined it would be to the point where you would be having cards in Brazil and Japan and England and all over the world. Like I said, I think if done properly and catered to the general fan, that could be fascinating
0: zubin look i've been i've been into it I know that the, that it's basically the only option out there but i've i've enjoyed it uh, over the last couple of months when uh, when they, when they did bring it back Zubin last thing in Jacksonville right is where it started again after the after the shutdown I want to say uh yeah. back back to the nBA for just a second Zubin help me out with this one the uh, the new coalition that you were that you referred to uh the young players Kyrie Irving is a part of it what are they what are they um wanting to hear Zubin is this all you know, these, I, I think I read somewhere that uh, there's a lot of 2017 draftees that are part of this group. They know that they're about to get paid and they don't want to get to Orlando without having, you know, every single precaution, uh, every I dotted T cross because they're about to get paid as they hit free agency. Is that what that is about or help me out on this?
3: Yeah, I think it's two pronged. I think that's the smaller one, but obviously, if you're up for a big uh, extension, that's not a small thing. Somebody like Donovan Mitchell, for example, huge star, Utah Jazz, a team that's fighting for a playoff spot could possibly go deep into this three-month tournament, depending on, you know, how far they can last. Uh, Guys like that that are up for big-money deals are going into, I wouldn't say an unsafe environment, but they're going into an unsecured environment. You just don't know how these courts are going to play, how things are going to work, what's going to happen. And, yes, you could get injured anywhere. You could get injured Uh, And Vivid Smart Bank Arena where the Jazz play, or you could get injured on a court with, uh, you know, a Jazz logo that they're bringing over. That's one of the cool things. A lot of the teams are going to be able to bring their logos and lay them down on the floor in uh, Walt Disney World if they're playing a home game. You could get injured anywhere and anytime, but a lot of these guys feel like because now you're stepping into an unprecedented situation, you're not really sure what every day brings, that they want to be financially taken care of especially if they were in line for a big money contract i don't think they would think twice if this was pre-pandemic obviously but just with everything going on that's a concern for them and i think they want to make sure they're financially taken care of in case anything happens because much like major league baseball players will tell you they are the ones risking their lives going back out there vis-a-vis the owners or nba management secondarily i think there's also an aspect that the players are bringing together that's a much bigger deal than basketball, Kyrie Irving's point, Stephen Jackson, who played 14 years in the NBA, and he's been out there uh, giving quite a lot of analysis. His point, Kyrie's point, and a lot of other players are saying now, even though Kyrie is at you know uh, a salary point that not have a lot of players in the league are at. What they're afraid of is if the league gets going again on July 31st, and they've made all this progress right now to talk about uh, Black Lives Matter and to talk about furthering the discussions on race. They do believe if some of these games go down on July 31, we'll wake up on August 1, and the conversation is going to be, hey, did you see that game last night? Can you believe how good Nikola Jokic Look at how skinny James Harden is. And all of the attention is going to go back on basketball. And right now, at this point in the country, with the sway that a lot of athletes have and the place that we are and the rising tide and the changes we're seeing from people of all backgrounds to civil unrest to social justice, I think a lot of players feel that if they go back out and play, that the play is going to overshadow mm. some of the bigger things that are out there that are far bigger than basketball. Once they get out there and they get close to crowning a champion and LeBron is in the NBA finals and it's going to be a legacy altering moment. If he can win a title with the Lakers or if the Clippers advance to the NBA finals for the first time in franchise history and Kawhi is on the verge of a third title, with a third team like LeBron, that all of the attention will be focused on hoops and their stardom and their legacy and will take away from some of the conversation that's being had right now in lieu of games being played. So I think there's a financial component, but I also think there's a social component that they're very worried about.
0: Trent made that point early in the program. Good stuff, Zubin Mahente. Thank you, as always. We'll talk to you in a week's time. Be well, Zubin. Take care. Thanks, guys. Good to talk to you. Zuma Mahente from ESPN. We'll come back ton late to wrap up the program as we continue on. It's 1460 KXNO and 106. Gathering spot. <laughs> couple of minutes here on a Tuesday. David Kaplan will join us tomorrow. We we'll look forward to Cappy, as we always do. Thank you, Centurion Stone of Iowa, for making that possible. Cappy was part of the uh, Long Gone Summer on Sunday nights. We'll do that. and mm-hmm. some Baseball
2: stuff. That's a good thing. I Cappy. love talking baseball. I, I wish too. we had games to talk about. I do, too. Trent, just <laughs> patience. You're feeling it. I just think it's a complete delay
0: tactic. Yeah. yeah. Get to September 27th. Get your calendar out and count backwards to 48 Mm -hmm. or 54. And where do you land August the 3rd? Well, the players will come to an agreement four weeks prior to that. They'll get their training camp in, pitchers and catchers, and then uh, they'll play an abbreviated season. I'm convinced that's where we're headed to. Uh, Murph and Andy will be along today at 2 o'clock. Of course, the Fanatics will slide in here
2: at 4. You have no high school baseball until Friday night. Friday night, making my way out to Waukee last night. The Warriors, a couple of 2-1 to wins against Mason City. Pitchers duels, nice. Yes, great, great pitching staff out there. A couple of D1 kids, a K-State commit and an Iowa commit on that Hawaii uh, baseball roster. My first look at the Warriors this year. All right, uh, Murph and Andy, two fanatics for tomorrow morning. The morning rush will kick off another day of local
0: programming, as they always do, at 6 a.m. We're Miller and Condon, weekdays tenth to noon on 1460 and 106.3.